Every year we hold a pastor's conference for Calvary chapels in the Deep South. Pastors come and they bring the leaders from their church. It gives us an opportunity as pastors to sort of catch up with one another, brief each other on what's going on, ask various questions, eat lots of barbecue. It's just a vital time to be together. Well, in Acts chapter 15, we follow Paul to a pastor's conference. Chapter 15 now opens 20 years after the day of Pentecost. When the Spirit was poured out on the disciples in the upper room, it was like a rock splashing in the middle of a lake. Ripples of Christian faith went out in all directions. The gospel spread to Judea, to Samaria, to North Africa, to Damascus, then a breakthrough. In Caesarea, God saved a Roman soldier in his household, full-blooded Gentiles no less. Soon a church was established in Antioch that actually targeted Gentiles as candidates for the gospel. In Acts chapters 13 and 14, Antioch sent out Paul and Barnabas on a mission to reach Gentiles. Which brings us now to chapter 15. And certain men came down from Judea, they came to Antioch, and they taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now when you think of villains, I'm sure the following words come to your mind. Nazis. Al-Qaeda. Mafia. Hell's Angels. But let me add one more name to that list. Judaizers. Hey, these guys were theological thugs. The Judaizers liked to pick on believers to rob them of their faith and their joy. You know, when Philip brought the gospel to the Samaritans, I'm sure that there were a few Jews that sort of raised an eyebrow at that. What's he doing going to the Samaritans? When Peter preached to the Romans at Cornelius' house, I'm certain there were some Orthodox Jews that began to talk. When Paul traveled to Galatia and deliberately targeted the Gentiles for salvation, oh boy, there were some Jewish legalists that went ballistic then. You see, the Jews had spent 1,500 years trying to keep the law of Moses. How dare Paul now offer salvation to the Gentiles by faith alone? You see, these Judaizers, they were party poopers. Where was the blood, sweat, and tears in the salvation of the Gentiles? How could faith in Jesus accomplish what rigorous obedience to the law could never do? These Judaizers wanted to sentence the Gentiles to the same hard labor they had served. They wanted to add some elbow grease to the blood of Jesus. And these prideful Jews, they came to Antioch to correct Paul. You see, they put more confidence in the blood of goats than they did in the blood of Christ. In their own righteousness than they did in Christ's righteousness. In their own works than in the grace of God. They scoffed at the all-sufficiency of Jesus. Remember the Judaizers, they preached what we called last week a Christ-plus theology. Oh, it was okay to put your faith in Jesus as long as you added certain elements of the Jewish law. It was Christ plus Sabbath keeping, Christ plus kosher laws, Christ plus sacrifices, and above all, there was circumcision. 
circumcision was the insignia of Judaism. It was the logo of legalism. The Judaizers, they expected the Gentile believers to go under the knife. How could you possibly be saved if you neglected such an important Jewish tradition? But Paul, you see, fought back. Verse 2. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. It's interesting, Luke skips over in one sentence what Paul takes almost a whole chapter in the book of Galatians to discuss. In Galatians 2 verse 5, Paul talks about his encounter with these Judaizers. And he remembers to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. When these legalists arrived there in Antioch, they even intimidated Peter, if you remember. The apostle Peter had been schooled in grace, but he treated the Gentiles as second-class Christians, and Paul had to go toe-to-toe with Peter in order to rebuke him. The gospel, Paul said, was grace for every race. There are no second-class Christians in the kingdom of God. We're all saved the same way. Jews and Gentiles are are saved the same way by faith in Christ. God's righteousness comes to us apart from the law, not through the law. Paul stood up for Jesus. He stood up for the people that Jesus died to save. And he won the argument there in Antioch. But the Judaizers... They want to move the confrontation down to their own turf, Jerusalem. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. Paul's moving now. He's coming down for the pastor's conference there in Jerusalem. And he passes through Phoenicia, Samaria, and wherever he goes, He brings joy to the church. You know, a person who's living out God's grace always brings joy wherever he goes. A legalist, on the other hand, brings joy whenever he goes. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now here was the debate in a nutshell. Did a Gentile have to become a Jew before he could be saved? Did he have to live under the law? Did he have to be circumcised? Did he have to obey the customs of Moses? In his letter to the Galatians, Paul said that not only did he and Barnabas go to Jerusalem, but they brought with them a convert an uncircumcised Gentile named Titus. And the Judaizers were outraged. They tried to put Titus under the knife. Again, Paul refused to budge. Circumcision won't cut it. That's supposed to be a joke. It's by faith in Christ and faith alone. Verse 6, now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. This was the first of many other church councils. Throughout history, church leaders have gathered together to settle disputes and to hammer out points of doctrine. 
In fact, in the first 700 years of Christianity, there were eight major church councils. Perhaps the most strategic of these occurred in 325 A.D. in the Turkish town of Nicaea. There the church put down the heresy of Arius and nailed down the deity of Jesus. But this was also a crucial church council here in Jerusalem. If the requirements of salvation had not been clarified, there might have been no need for any future councils. I mean, if the Judaizers had prevailed, Christianity might not have reached the Gentiles. It might have just been reduced to a Jewish sect. The spread among the Gentiles could have been permanently stunted. This was an important church council. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now what's he talking about? He's talking about his experience 10 years earlier in Acts chapter 10. When the Spirit of God fell on the household of Cornelius before Peter had finished his sermon. I mean, without without them clipping a single circumcision, God saved the Gentiles. He poured out His Spirit as proof. Peter says, so God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Peter said, who are we to argue with God? God required no more from the Gentiles than He had required from the Jews on the day of Pentecost. God purified the hearts of the Gentiles and He poured out His Spirit on the Gentiles in the same way He did with Jews for no other reason than by faith. It was all about Jesus. I mean, here were Gentiles. They they ignored religion. They went to the movies on Friday night. They went to football games on the Sabbath. They smoked cigars and chewed tobacco and ate pork barbecue and listened to rock and roll music and wore shorts to church. They were completely ignorant of Jewish customs. In fact, they thought Moses was a retired basketball player. They hadn't kept the law a day in their lives. And yet God accepted them and forgave them and sealed them and filled them by faith. Peter's saying, who are we to argue with God? And then he says in verse 10, Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? I mean, the Jews had failed to keep their own law. They tried, but the law was too comprehensive. Certain standards always slipped through the cracks. You know, the Jews worked hard to be good, but they were never good enough. Despite all the effort, Jews were sinners just like the Gentiles. Maybe more religious sinners. More well-groomed sinners. Maybe more sanitary or healthier sinners. But they were sinners nonetheless. All their legalism only made the Jews proud and self-righteous. Judaism was like a treadmill. Always doing, but going nowhere. So why expect the Gentiles to keep a standard that had eluded the Jews? Good question. Peter confesses, but we, speaking of the Jews, 
believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Neither Jews or Gentiles are made right with God through their own works. We all approach God the same way, through grace, by faith. And then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. Now they're discussing the miracles they had seen happen during their first missionary journey. You remember all that happened? God blinded a sorcerer. You remember that story? God healed the lame man there in Lystra. God worked miracles in the midst of the Gentiles. And again, it was all proof of his acceptance of those Gentiles. Verse 13. Now after they had become silent, James answered saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Everybody's piping in now. This is James, the brother of our Lord Jesus. You know, it's interesting. John chapter 7 verse 4 tells us that James didn't even believe in Jesus until after he had been resurrected. And yet it's amazing how quickly he rose to prominence in the Jerusalem church. James had several nicknames that characterized his, his nature. For one, he was called James the Just. That was due to his impeccable character. He was also called Old Camel Knees. <laughs> Because his knees were calloused from the much time he spent in prayer. And yet it's interesting in Galatians chapter 2 verse 12. When Paul mentions the Judaizers who had come to Antioch from Jerusalem. He calls them certain men who came from James. Now we learn here that James believed in salvation by faith through grace. Certainly he did. But from the letter that he wrote. We just studied it a few Sundays ago. We know that James had some strong convictions on the significance of good works. You know, according to James, we're saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. If you truly believe, you'll act on it. Real faith always leaves behind tracks. You see, these Judaizers had misinterpreted James while claiming to represent him. And I think this was one of the reasons that James spoke up at the council. He wanted to set the record straight. He stood with Paul and with Peter in their defense of the gospel. Remembering Acts chapter 15 always helps us when we study the book of James. Well, James continues here in verse 14. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it was written. And here he quotes Amos 9, verse 11. James is going back to Scripture to prove that God is doing a work among the Gentiles. He says, after this, he quotes Amos, after this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Now, James quotes a verse that won't be fulfilled until Jesus returns. The Old Testament predicted that Messiah will sit on the throne of David. And what will the Gentiles do? They'll all flock to Jerusalem to seek the Lord. He adds, known to God from eternity are all his works. Here's James's point. The scriptures teach God's love for the Gentiles. 
The Old Testament predicted that God would desire to save all men, including Gentiles. And what was happening at the time in the church among the Gentiles was in harmony with God's eternal plan. Here's what was going on in the council as they were discussing this issue. Peter had recalled the past. Paul was recounting the present. Now James mentions a prophecy. When God's word and God's works line up, when the past, when the present, and when the prophecy all align, you can be sure that you're witnessing the hand of God at work. What bothered the Judaizers was certainly no bother to God. Now Peter and Paul, they wanted to shut the mouth of these Judaizers. But James had a little different motivation. He wanted to open their eyes. You see, James wasn't just trying to win an argument. His goal was to win a brother. Have you ever discovered that's true? You know, you can argue with somebody. You maybe can win the argument, but you'll alienate that person you're arguing with. That wasn't James's desire. He wanted to win the Jews, not just win the argument. Yes, we're reconciled to God by faith, but the gospel also seeks to reconcile us to one another. In other words, Jews and Gentiles should be one in Christ. Now, James had empathy for the Jews. He understood their loyalty to the law. In fact, in his letter, the epistle of James, James refers to the law ten different times in that letter. And he knew firsthand how difficult it was for an Orthodox Jew to transition from a legalistic life to a life of grace. Remember now, this was before the books of Romans and Galatians and Hebrews had been written. I mean, relating to God by grace was new to these Jews. It was clear to James and the council of Jerusalem that God was forging ahead in a new direction. But James wanted to take his Jewish brethren with him rather than leave them behind. And so he makes a suggestion. Verse 19. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every synagogue being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Here's what James is doing. He's wanting to ease the Jews into grace. He insists that the Gentiles maintain their freedom from the law. But why offend the Jewish brothers unnecessarily? And so he offers this suggestion. Ask the Gentiles to limit their freedom for a time until the Jews can catch up. Understand? Dwight Eisenhower once called the art of compromise the ability to employ all the usable surface. I like that. The ability to employ all the usable surface. He said the extremes, right or left, are in the gutters. Understand where I'm going. If James had sided with the legalistic Jews, 
with no truth for the Gentiles, he would have been in the right-hand gutter. On the other hand, if he had sided with the Gentiles without any sensitivity toward the Jews, he would have been in the left-hand gutter. Instead, James finds some usable surface. He stands in the middle, so to speak. He stands for truth and love for both groups. He finds some usable surface where he can both support the Gentiles and at the same time encourage the Jews. You see, the code of Moses consisted of 613 laws. James says, let's free you from the law. Let's whittle that 613 laws down, but let's still keep four laws just out of respect for the Jews until they can understand grace, until they can understand this business of being free from the law. And he keeps four laws, four prohibitions that were of particular importance to the Jews. He forbids meat sacrificed to idols, sexual immorality, meat not properly prepared or properly strangled, and drinking blood. These were things that were so distasteful to the Jews, it would offend them if they saw Gentiles participating. Now later in the New Testament, once the Jews have had an opportunity to grow in grace, Paul will even remove these last four sanctions. Of course, sexual, no sexual immorality is always enforced, not because of law, but because of love. If you love someone, you're going to support their morality and hopefully keep them pure before God, in the, in the eyes of God. And so, he takes the law. You're free from the law. 613 laws. We're going to throw out 609 right here and now. But we're going to keep four in place for a time until the Jews can get used to living by grace. That's what he's saying. Verse 22. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. Now here's an irony. The name Barsabbas, it means son of the Sabbath. And so here the son of the Sabbath goes with Paul and Barnabas to Antioch to free the Gentiles from the burden of the Sabbath rules. That's ironic. And they wrote this letter by them. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. And, and how sweet the sound of that to start with. The Jews were calling the Gentiles brothers. They'd come a long way. Since we have heard that some of you went out from us, have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. And, and here's the verdict that we've reached. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, 
and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. This was the official document that came out of the first church council. Leaders in Jerusalem, they recognized that in Christ, God does free us from the demands of the law. And by showing some sensitivity, they hoped that as many Jews as possible would follow the Gentiles into this liberty that has been paid for by Christ Jesus. They didn't just ignore the Jews. They wanted to bring them along with them. They didn't want to just win an argument. They wanted to win a brother. Once there was a millionaire, he was explaining his financial success to a young protege. He said, son, I started out by buying an apple for a nickel. I brought that apple home and I shined and polished that apple until it was brilliant red. The next day I sold it for a dime. And then I took that dime and I bought me two apples. And I shined them and I sold them for 20 cents. Then I took that 20 cents and I bought four apples. And I turned that four apples into eight apples. And that eight apples into 16 apples. And that 16 into 32 apples. And I sold them. And I made $3.20. And at that point, my father-in-law died and left me $10 million. You see, as a child of God, we have been blessed with tremendous spiritual blessings. But our windfall had nothing to do with our buying and our shining and our cleaning and our polishing. It's not our cleverness that procures God's blessing. We are rich, my friend, because somebody died. Jesus paid for God's incredible mercies. And as the Gentiles learned and as the church confirmed, we receive it all through grace by faith. Verse 30. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets, also exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. I mean, Antioch was a pretty cool church. Silas just wanted to hang out for a while. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, with many others also. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. The word translated determined is a Greek word. It means to keep on insisting. Apparently, Barnabas was adamant. For him, Mark's presence on this next trip was non-negotiable. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Remember what happened last week. Paul and Barnabas left Cyprus. And they sailed northward toward the Turkish coast. That's when Mark bailed. He quit. He went home. He proved chicken before they got to Turkey. 
Now Barnabas, the son of consolation, he wants to console and encourage and give his young nephew a second chance. Paul, on the other hand, he sees the work as far too important to take a chance on a boy who's already proven he's not up for the challenge. You know, when you're in a battle, you've got to make sure that you trust the men in your platoon. And Paul no longer trusted John Mark. And so, the contention between them became so sharp that they parted from one another. And we gasp. Oh, no. These men are apostles. They're founders of the church. And yet you tell me they argued so violently they couldn't get along and they ended up splitting ranks? Well, it happened even in the early church. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now here are two men of, of tremendous spiritual stature. In fact, they have just solved a major crisis in the church at large. I mean, they averted a colossal bust-up between Jew and Gentiles. But now, just a few days later, they get so mad at each other that they can't decide to work together any longer. And they go their separate ways. What's with this? You know, it proves that that even apostles are subject to anger and pride and friction. Mark may have been a chicken, but I think both Paul and Barnabas were turkeys. They should have gotten along. Sure they should have, but they didn't. And yet here is an amazing truth. Though they were human and sinful and stubborn, God still used them both. Warren Wiersbe states the obvious. He says, if God had to depend on perfect people to accomplish his work, he would never get anything done. Don't you know it? God actually used man's obstinacy for God's glory. Instead of one team now doing missions among the Gentiles, there are two teams. The division doubled the effort. It's amazing that years later, Paul will write to Timothy, 2 Timothy Chapter 4, verse 11, and he'll tell Timothy, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Isn't that amazing? Paul's attitude toward Mark eventually changed. Perhaps his time with Barnabas helped him grow. Through, through Acts, though Acts tracks only Paul and Silas, it seems that God did bless both teams. He certainly continued to bless Paul in chapter 16. Verse 1. Well, then he came to Derbe and Lystra. Now, you remember on Paul's first missionary journey, he sailed to Galatia. This time, he and Silas, they come overland. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. You remember his mother's name? It was Eunice. And he even had a grandmother. You remember her name? It was Lois. 2 Timothy 3 verse 10 describes the impact that Paul had on Timothy while in Lystra. He says, you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Lystra. 
You remember Timothy was there when Paul was stoned at Lystra. He saw Paul's determination in the face of persecution. He saw Paul's example and it led to his faith in Christ. In fact, six times in the New Testament, Paul calls Timothy my son in the faith. They had a special relationship. You know, I believe that every believer needs to be someone's Paul and someone's Timothy. We need to be mentored by an older, wiser Christian. We need a Paul in our lives. But then we also need to take a younger believer under our wing and invest in them. We need a Timothy in our lives. Let me ask you, who is your Paul? Who is your Timothy? There needs to be one of both. Now verse 2, he was well spoken, this Timothy was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted to have him go on with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region. For they all knew that his father was Greek. Now wait a minute. Circumcised him? I mean, Paul just fought tooth and nail in Jerusalem to keep the Gentiles from having to be circumcised. Why is he now clipping poor Timothy? Remember Paul's strategy. Whenever he entered a city, where did he go first? He always went to the Jews. He always went to the Jewish synagogue. Then, after ministering to the Jews, he went to the Gentiles. Here's the problem. If Timothy's going to go with Paul, and if he wasn't circumcised, he wouldn't be able to accompany Paul into the Jewish synagogues. You see, this had nothing to do with righteousness, but this did have something to do with effectiveness in ministry. You know, oftentimes in ministry, we have to forego a freedom for love's sake, for the gospel's sake. I mean, we don't want someone to stumble. So as a Christian, we may have to lay aside a right or lay aside a freedom. As a Christian, I'm free to sit up here and teach this Bible study and smoke a big old fat cigar while I'm doing it. I'm free to do that. But if I did, it'd probably come across a little awkward, wouldn't it? Be kind of hard listening to a Bible study and seeing somebody blow these big old cigar rings out of his mouth. You know what? I'm happy to forego that liberty in order to minister through the Word of God. I'm happy to do that. And I think this is the maturity that's needed in a leader. He or she is willing to put aside their own freedoms in order to spread the gospel, in order to love God's people. Notice verse 4. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. And so the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. Now, Jesus said, go into all the world. But the Holy Spirit tells us where in the world to go. Paul now is traveling west. He turns south to Asia. See that? See on the map? He's traveling west. He turns south toward Asia. The Holy Spirit says no. He turns north toward Bithynia. 
Again, the Holy Spirit says no, so he continues westward. See, we need to be as quick to obey God's no's as we are his go's. When the Spirit puts a check in our hearts, it's best to wait. Or maybe move in another direction. Here's the worst thing you can do. Try to knock down a door that God's Spirit has closed. You don't want to do that. Now, how the Spirit spoke to Paul, we're not sure. Some Bible, some Bible teachers believe that it was through his thorn in the flesh, his physical infirmity. Remember, we talked about this earlier. It could have been, his thorn in the flesh could have been his eye disease or maybe migraine headaches that came uh, as a result of malaria he could contracted on his previous journey. We're not quite sure, but there was some physical ailment from which Paul suffered. And this may have, this may have determined where he was able to go. He, he sought out drier climates so that the symptoms would subside. That's why he kept pushing west. You know, it's interesting that the Holy Spirit sometimes guides us through an illness, through something that's beyond our control. I remember after high school, I wanted to play college basketball. But that summer, I came down with mononucleosis. Sat me up my strength. You know, really ended my career. And at the time, I was pretty bummed out by the whole deal. But now I thank God for the setback. He used it to redirect my life toward ministry. I mean, think about it. If it hadn't have been for that, I'd now be a retired NBA millionaire instead of your pastor. How tragic would that be? I would much rather be your pastor than a retired millionaire, NBA millionaire. So, passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. It says, no going south, no going north. So he keeps heading west. He ends up in Troas. Troas was a port on the Aegean Sea. It was the last stop west before crossing over onto the continent of Europe. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Macedonia included the cities of Philippi. Thessalonica, Berea. When Paul obeys the vision, for the first time, the gospel will come to Europe. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, remember, when God closes one door, it's only to open another. This is what he's doing with Paul. We just have to wait sometimes, shake off our desires in order to tune in to God's vision. Notice also, though, the change of pronoun in verse 10. Notice suddenly Luke starts writing in the first person. In verse 10 he says, we sought to go to Macedonia. Apparently, Dr. Luke joined Paul and his pals in Troas. Perhaps it was to treat Paul's illness. His thorn in the flesh. Luke was a doctor. He also accompanied him to Macedonia. Some Bible students believe that Luke was the man from Macedonia that appeared in Paul's vision. It's possible. Well, therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, which was about 150 miles northwest of Troas. And from there to Philippi, 
which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. Now, Philippi was 10 miles inland from Neapolis. Some people believe that Philippi was Luke's hometown because of, and here's why, because of the glowing terms he uses to describe the city. Notice again in verse 12, he calls Philippi the foremost city of that part of Macedonia. Could have been his hometown, that's why he spoke of it as the foremost city. He says, and on the Sabbath day, we went out to the, of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made and we sat down and we spoke to the women who met there. Met there. Apparently there was no Jewish synagogue in Philippi. The few Jews who lived there, they would go out to the river to pray and read scripture on the Sabbath. And remember, though it was a man in the vision, when he arrives, all he finds is women by the river. Notice that. You know, the rabbis taught, and I'm sure Paul once believed, it is better that the words of the Lord be burned than to be delivered to a woman. The Jewish rabbis were chauvinistic, to say the least. And yet Paul had set aside his Jewish chauvinism. He knows that in Christ we are all one. And he's happy to sit down with the women by the river and share with them the gospel of Jesus. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Lydia. She was a successful businesswoman. She was the Mary Kay of Philippi. That's what she was. She was an importer of purple cloth. And hey, Lydia, this woman from Philippi, holds the distinction of being the first Christian convert on the continent of Europe. How's that? And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so she persuaded us. We got some, I make a delicious coconut cream pie, Paul. Why don't you just come over to our house and hang out there? Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us and brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. Here was a girl who told fortunes and apparently made a fortune. While divining for dollars, she patted her owner's pockets. And yet no one cared about the poor girl trapped and controlled by demons. She was demon-possessed. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. And what the girl said about Paul was true. But think about it, what minister of the gospel wants publicity from a demoniac? You know what I mean? The message was right, but the medium was wrong. Anyway, you, you get that, the, the medium was wrong. We're told, but Paul greatly annoyed. He, greatly, he was ticked off by this girl. She kept following him around, yelling at him, broadcasting messengers of the most high God he turned just got tired of it one day and he turned and he said to the spirit I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her 
And he came out that very hour. She was instantly delivered. And you would think her masters would be rejoicing for her. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Well, it's amazing how tolerant folks are to the gospel until it starts cutting into their pockets, their profits. Isn't that amazing? All too often, persecution rises because of an economic incentive. Well, then the multitude, they rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. Now, this was just a Singapore style. Imagine a caning with a bamboo rod. You remember, Jewish justice was tempered by mercy. The Jews limited the beatings to 39 lashes. Forty was the number of judgment, and so 40 minus 1 or 39 was tempering judge justice with mercy. But a Roman scourging was particularly brutal, for there were no restrictions on the lashes laid by a Roman. The severity of the whipping was left up to the judge or the torturers. And so verse 23 tells us, when they had laid many stripes on them, we don't know how many, but there were many, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. And having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, the prisons at the time were usually in the jailer's basement. I think I have a picture of the prison there in Philippi. The prisons were usually in the jailer's basement. They were cold, they were dark, they were damp, and they were rat-infested. Paul and Silas were placed in the stocks. These weren't just, you know, something that restrained the victim. This was something that stretched the person's legs and arms. It was a form of torture. Imagine now Paul and Silas. Their backs are now nothing but a crisscross maze of cuts and oozing tissue. Their limbs are dislocated, pulled out of their sockets. Their lacerated backs are now bumping up against the cold dirt wall as they hang from the stocks. Prison rats are now nibbling at a fresh set of toes. Unrelenting pain is ricocheting throughout their bodies. How would you react if that happened to you? I'll tell you, I'd be having a New Year's Eve-sized pity party. That's what I'd be doing. But not Paul and Silas. Verse 25, for at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. In the worst imaginable pain, they're praising God. Rather than sulking their singing, rather than whining their worshiping. I love what C.H. Spurgeon wrote. He said, any fool can sing in the day. It is easy to sing when we can read the notes by daylight, but the skillful singer is he who can sing when there is not a ray of light to read by. Songs in the night come only from God. They are not in the power of men. God is the reason that Paul sings. 
Though his physical circumstances are excruciating, Paul's soul is soaring. He's in the presence of Jesus. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison was shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were loosed. Wow, praise is powerful. It shakes stuff up. Again, Paul was so touched with his spiritual blessings, with the joy he experienced in Jesus, he refused to let his physical circumstances depress him. What an example for you and I. God responds with an earthquake. He shakes loose the prison chains. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. I mean, suicide would have been a kinder fate for a jailer who had allowed a whole prison population to escape. But Paul called for a loud voice, with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. All present and accounted for, jailer. And then he, the jailer, called for a light. And he ran in and he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What a great question. The earthquake had obviously shaken up the jailer as well. And so they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. Perhaps you have the same question tonight. What must I do to be saved? Well, the answer is simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Some folks, though, draw the wrong conclusion from the remainder of this verse. He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and you and your household. And because of and your household, some people have taught what's called household salvation. That if a man is saved, then everyone under his authority is saved with him. But here's the problem. You need to read the verse in the context. Read verse 31 in the context. Notice what comes right after it. Verse 32. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him. They didn't stop with him. If household salvation is true, if one man can be saved and everybody else is saved, you know, by proxy, well then why does Paul go on and preach to all those who were in his house? If the jailer's salvation included all his family, why did Paul make a house call? And share the gospel with everyone under his roof. It is true that a father influences his family, but faith is always a personal decision. There is no such thing as household salvation unless everyone in the household makes a decision to be saved. Verse 33, And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. This is so great. The jailer washes and nurses Paul's wounds, and Paul baptizes the jailer. The jailer washes Paul, and then Paul washes the jailer. And I think the jailer here shows the true marks of repentance. Check this out. How do you know a person's really repentant? They're willing to care for the wounds that they've inflicted. 
They don't just say, well, well I've hurt so-and-so, I've hurt so-and-so, I'm sorry, and walk away. No, they want to nurse those wounds and help heal those wounds. They want to repair the damage that they've done. That's the true heart of repentance. Now, when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Notice the jailer didn't believe for his household. He believed with his household. They all had faith. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers saying, let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates would have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. And you would think Paul would welcome this news, but not so. For Paul said to him, they have beaten us openly, condemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. You see, Paul was a Roman citizen. He traveled on a Roman passport. And Roman citizens had special privileges. They were supposed to get a fair trial, not the railroad job they got here in Philippi. And now that the authorities realize they're Roman citizens, they realize they've messed up. The authorities, they want to save face. They want to just sort of sneak Paul out of town. But he doesn't want people thinking he's guilty of a crime, that he's just slinking away. They need to come down here and make this official and, and, and make us, give us an official release and acknowledge the mistakes they've made. Paul's standing up for himself for the sake of the church and its reputation. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. And Paul will leave town, but not before he encourages the church. I love this. Paul was always thinking about the welfare and the care of the churches that he planted. He cared about the church. You know, we need to care about the church as well. And so they went out of the prison and they entered the house of Lydia. That's where the church met. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Later, Paul will write a letter to these believers. You can read it tonight. It's called the letter to the Philippians. And so there we have it. Acts chapters 15 and 16. Go ahead. Between now and next Wednesday, read chapters 17 and 18. We're going to talk about Paul's message on... Uh, Mars Hill, the famed mountain there in Greece where Paul engages the Greek philosophers. What a moment that was. We're going to talk about that next week. So read Acts chapter 17 and 18 for next time.